I first got interested in the paranormal, as we call it these days, when I was about 13 years of age. Having been put in that direction, I think, by a near-death experience at the age of five or six, I had a, um, an operation uh, at that age, a tonsillectomy, which was something that people had on the very least excuse in those days. And coming out of the anaesthetic, I found myself hurtling along a tunnel at great speed. Those of you who know the near-death experience accounts will recognize that. And I was very upset indeed. I couldn't remember where I'd been, but I certainly didn't want to leave it. And uh, I arrived in consciousness in the side ward of the hospital, very, very upset indeed at having been torn away from somewhere that seemed, I can only describe it as a place of great felicity. And I carried this with me, and I was attending Sunday school in those days as a little boy, and saying to myself, they're not telling us the truth. They're not telling us the truth. So I started to look for the truth. And at the age of 12 or 13, 12, I was reading philosophy. I must have been a bit precocious, I think. Encyclopedia of Psychic Science. It was introduced by Sir Oliver Lodge, uh, an eminent physicist of those days. Some of you may have heard of him. And uh, once... I'd started to read that book. I realized intuitively that this was the goal I'd been seeking. And from that point on, I never left, I never stopped searching. But no personal experience occurred with me until I was about 53 or 4. That's a long time to have to wait. And I started doing healing, and from healing I moved on to what I call clear sentience, which at times turns into some form of clairvoyance, pursuing a path of increasing awareness of the paranormal. Do always make sure that you have control, that you can say enough, you can opt out at any point. So if an experience worries you, push it away. That is very important. Never give up your integrity to anyone else or anything else. There's no need to. I work in that way. I always know what's going on. At the same time, my consciousness moves it to another level when I have the experiences I shall describe. Sometimes I do this voluntarily. Well, in a sense, it's always voluntary because I could stop it if it weren't. But in other, at other times, it's almost as I'm nudged by something, as again you'll see. Well, let's go back <coughs> to one of the earliest experiences I had. I was sitting with the president of the College of Psychic Studies in her office, having only met her once or twice before and suddenly I, was, I felt I had a feeling of distress I knew something somebody somewhere was very upset so I allowed my consciousness to move 
into a response mode if you like and the first thing I got was London always was a noisy place outside the at that moment the pneumatic drills were going in a building next door and this was picked up it was a man that was with me and it unfolded that this man had lived in the latter half of the Victorian era he'd worked for a very cruel master he himself was badly deformed he was what we these days would call spastic his master regarded him as subhuman and this man said to me I had a terrible life with him the only relief I got was when he beat me and that tells you something and he was stuck at the earth level and the reason he was stuck as he said was I don't want to go where he is I don't want to go where he is and this fear that he would meet up again with a cruel master was what held him back well after a little while we managed to get him to understand that there was no chance of that whatever and uh, he accepted that and it opened his mind and at that point he was led away into the light now this is a characteristic of many of these releases I call them releases rather than rescues they are earthbound for one of a great variety of reasons and in that state they are not fully conscious of the passage of time some have been trapped for centuries some have been trapped for a very short time one who was trapped for many centuries said to me at a later time I suppose about two years after he was released from that condition he said the time since you helped me to escape from that state seems to me longer than all the time that went before so that's merciful thing because were it otherwise these people would suffer a great deal more than they actually do so let's go on to another case an interesting one I was called into a house where a young lady and a young lady she was a single mother had been worried by a presence in the house she was psychic herself she'd seen a very tall man and at one stage it seemed to her he tried to push one of her children down the stairs so she got very alarmed at this and asked me if I would go along so I went along with a colleague and I'd only just sat down in the living room and uh, within a few moments I tuned into this man turned out that um, he had suffered a very painful life in about the 13th century he'd lived either on the site of this new house as it was or somewhere near it in a village outside Nottingham he was very tall as tall went in those days 
and rather ungainly and uh, he, he was laughed at and derided by the other children as he grew up and of course they were in those days particularly cruel to anyone that was a little bit different people still are sometimes but I think it was even worse then and they regarded him with a mixture of derision and suspicion he discovered this <coughs> this suspicion this other worry they had and played on it after a time and if they bothered him too much he would act as though he were going to put a curse on them and that was enough to keep them at bay but as he grew up things didn't get any better he lived on the outskirts of the village with his mother when his mother died they seized him at a later point and they tied him to a I would say a pole or the thin trunk of a tree and put him through the ordeal that sometimes they put people through by submersing him in water tied to this long pole he drowned he was stuck due to the horror of his death and the fears that went with it fear is often a major factor in trapping people and um, he'd been in that state ever since I went through his death experience with him and this is often necessary because it is like the psychiatrist taking someone through a, through a catharsis in the process of psychiatry and it releases them from the emotional bondage that the whatever event is involved is exercising and once I got him through that then he was obviously much relieved and I was waiting for the next stage to occur I know to explain but I don't do this work on my own because there is an invisible team on the other side invisible to me that is who sometimes seem to set these things up and nearly always arrange some sort of finality to whatever takes place and it's always very very appropriate so I could see then by this time I could see this man I could see the background of the of the hut where he lived the trees uh, surrounding the clearing and I was wondering what would happen and a voice called from the woods to him and it was his mother's voice the importance of this was it opened up a channel of love a response he loved his mother there weren't many other people in fact there was no one else he loved but his mother he loved so his mother called to him and I thought at first his mother was going to come to him but a man appeared from the woods dressed as a friar and he walked across to our friend and said do you remember me and he didn't at first but the man reminded him of the circumstances and they were that when he was a boy this friar was passing and his mother made the man welcome 
she gave him food and drink and he talked to the boy and the boy had never met anyone like this before and he was very impressed and he thought for a time this is the sort of life perhaps he would like later on but of course he never achieved it but that meeting had enough significance to help this lad out of, or man as he was, out of this, these circumstances. And once he'd accepted this friar, the friar said, well, come with me, and he took him away. And as, they, as he took him away, so I saw him moving down a path which was now light. And there's always a great deal of joy at that instance. A great deal of joy. One who knows that the, whoever's been trapped is now on their way to another level. Now about three weeks later the lady concerned rang me up and she said he's gone. She said I've got someone else here now. So I thought well that's extraordinary. And um, I, I was quite puzzled by this but I went along to see and she said that this was a young man and a girl. And she'd seen the faces and the figures on the landing upstairs and in various parts of the house and there had been minor mischief lights turned on and off and so on and so I took this at its face value to start with and um, made some slight effort to tune in and I find this happens quite naturally the first thing I saw was a beautiful car um, of the period about 1929 an open tourer with upstanding headlamps all very nicely polished and I wondered where this featured in this particular haunting and uh, then I saw the couple then I saw the car again this time the car was smashed in at the front up against a tree the young man and his girlfriend, it wasn't a young girl, it was his girlfriend as it happened, but she was short in stature and easily mistaken for a girl. He'd borrowed a car from a friend without asking for consent. He'd driven this car away, just for a joyride, happens these days of course, took a bend too fast, hit the tree, both killed outright, and being killed so suddenly, they found themselves standing outside the wreckage not realizing what had happened and the man's first thought was I've got to find somewhere where they'll tow the car away and repair it and this was the dominant thought in his mind he was filled with guilt and the need to do something about this so he and the girl wandered off and believe it or not since 1929 they'd been wandering and they'd practically forgotten what it was they were looking for and it was only when I began to take them through the experience again that they recalled the event and having done that <coughs> recalled the event they were then the emotional bondage if you like the mental bondage in which they'd found themselves was released and I wondered how again I always wonder this what's going to happen next 
and they were standing there and suddenly I was aware of the car at the side of them and they were equally surprised and the car now was perfect there was no damage done to it it was standing there ready and the pair of them got in it and to the man's amazement it started up on its own and it went along the track ahead and I knew, in fact I was told that ahead of them lay a party that would welcome them and that was the end of that one I on another occasion a sort of variation on this way in which people are taken away I went to a haunted house at another village outside well Newark this time and a major so I can't remember Major Brown I think it was had been living in this house for many years and he was about to sell it it was very strongly haunted he wanted to know what the story was before he sold it so that it would um, in fact satisfy his curiosity well um, when I allowed myself to tune into the situation I became aware of a young woman and she was dressed in white as a servant and the period I was picking up was the early Victorian era and she had been the um, maid in the house and everything went well until a man was taken on as a sort of ostler to look after the horses and he turned out to be a very unpleasant character and he stirred up a great deal of trouble and um, she complained to the master of the house tried to get him to understand this man was very was a bad man and was doing no good to the was doing a lot of harm and she had a great deal of trouble trying to persuade the master because the man was very persuasive himself the man saw that her activities were threatening him and he murdered her he made it look like an accident sufficiently for it to be passed off as one but when she passed into the next life her immediate concern was to take her revenge and she refused to be moved from the level that is the near earth level and she did of her best to haunt this man and make his life a misery and when eventually he died she found she couldn't get away she'd committed herself to this level and couldn't move from it. well again she was released having gone through her story with her she was released but instead of going to the level that we sometimes call Summerland or the level of the plane of illusion some of you may know about this instead of going straight there she would have had to make a journey people often find that if they have some sort of spiritual problems um, a lack of development in a certain direction that they may have to make a sort of pilgrim's progress they have to they can't go straight to this destination they have to take a, a journey 
and this was the case with her but I knew that in the course of time she would be perfectly alright she was released well having she was never seen anymore incidentally this is the test of all these hauntings that <coughs> if one makes if one does release these people then they're never seen again sometimes when they are driven out by some forms of, of exorcism they return a few days later I think one of the differences between the thing that I do and the thing that some church people do is that, is that I am very concerned about the one who is trapped but very often an exorcism as carried out by the church not invariably so it depends on the understanding of the man who's doing it but very often the process of exorcism drives the character away from where they are doing the haunting and out into the darkness and that may succeed for a few days but you'll find that very often they will return because they haven't been released they've merely been pushed away somewhere else that's not good enough this lady was never seen again but <clears throat> while I was still in the house I was asked if I could comment on another haunting in the same house very often houses are doubly haunted you know another haunting in the same house that was occurring in the area outside and there I found a man of the late 18th century and he was dressed in riding attire and he'd, his, he was stuck there and I went through his experience with him and what happened was that he was mounting a horse he got thrown he fell on his back his back was broken the servants came out to carry him in and in doing so they snapped the spinal cord he died instantly he was very attached to his daughter that was one reason why he got stuck but the main reason was that he was firmly um, a product of the age of reason he was a humanist and completely disbelieved in survival it just it, it was something that he just could not accept and if you don't accept it <clears throat> very firmly don't accept it it can act to hold you down I'll tell you more about the mechanics of this in a little moment in a little while but again having gone through his experience with him released him from the emotional and mental block that was there I waited to see what would happen and a horse cantered onto the scene the scene was the yard itself where all this happened and it was a horse that he knew well and he mounted the horse and as they went I was told the horse knows the pastures to which the man is to go and that was his release again with great deal of joy now let me say a little bit about the what I call the mechanics of this
you've got to understand if you don't already that existence at the next level is on the face of it superficially not dissimilar to the appearance of things on earth that is to say one sees trees shrubs rivers and so on and this, there is a very good reason for this if we suddenly found ourselves transported to a scene that was totally alien to us we would be completely discomforted so we find ourselves in a background which bears some resemblance to the background we know but it is also a much more beautiful background and it is what's called ideoplastic in varying degrees it responds to the mental processes it is possible <clears throat> and this is a skill that one acquires in the next life it is possible to use the mind to construct so that, for example if you wanted to build yourself a little house you could do it by going through the mental processes of designing it in your mind and then projecting this design once you've got it to a satisfactory state into what would appear to be some degree of reality to you and everybody else around you would then inspect in this semi-malleable state and if you were satisfied with it you would go on with the process and make the thing permanent I've been through this process partially with people in the next life I'm, so this again is my own, my own experience I for example had occasion to visit or meet with a man at his level and at that level my awareness is not as open as it is say around here now but I see a good deal and he was showing me the house in which he was now living and the first part of it was substantial and the, the last part of it the end part of it looked insubstantial misty and I asked him about this and he said he hadn't quite made up his mind about the details but he was going to do this but there was an amusing side to this because the previous time we'd met him he'd been living in a log cabin and um, his wife said well what was wrong with the log cabin he said well I wanted to change and he said anyway it's easy here we don't have to have estate agents and that was his comment now this process this process of imagining in a creative way is something that we do here and if we do it we employ an architect usually we may do it ourselves the architect builds the thing up in his own mind before he does anything else commits it to paper having put it down on paper he then turns it into reality by employing people to build it the essential difference is that you can go straight from the mental process to the reality and that's logical within in the context of what we call an ideoplastic world this is possible now, this being so, it means that 
the background one is in seems to have a great deal of bearing or is greatly affected by one's own degree of spiritual insight and I noticed that when people first go across they see the scenery around them they always comment on the beauty of it and so on but they also say after a few months I'm seeing things I didn't see before in fact what they are doing they hear music music coming from the flowers and the streams that they were not aware of initially and this process goes on and the whole environment is responding to the changes in them there's something greatly to be looked forward to I think and of course they're aware of a great widening of their own consciousness and a deepening of it and a much greater lightening of the body so altogether it is a much more comfortable existence but of course that's only the first stage but I'm going off track a bit let's go back to what I was talking about I want to tell you of an experience <clears throat> that is one of the most complex I've had in this, for, in this release field I was at home and became aware suddenly of the prow of a ship it intruded into my consciousness and I allowed myself to again tune into this and I knew that this was a large ship which had been sunk in time of war and I wasn't sure whether by mine or by torpedo I later came to think it was probably a mine I was wondering what this meant what it was for and then my attention was drawn to a man who was a stoker on board this ship I thought at first it was the second world war but I was corrected it was the first he was on board this ship when it was mined and began to take water and before very long he found himself completely trapped the vessel going down into deep water he tried to shout but as the pressure built up in the air that was left for him trapped in the vessel his voice was squeaky he couldn't shout well those of you who have an experience of diving will know that this is quite characteristic of, of the effects of high pressure the horror of his situation hardly needs to be laboured and to save his sanity he kept his mind fixed on his little family that he'd left behind and this fixed vision of his family together with the horror of his death caused him to be stuck in time and place if you like to this event I was going to help him and then a strange thing happened I found some part of me sitting on what appeared to be a park bench and uh, there was a path in front and some trees in the background but it was a fairly gloomy aspect very little light and on my left was sitting the man the man whom I was trying to release and from the left came towards us 
an adult and in the adult's hand was a little boy and as he was walking along the little boy was pulling a wooden locomotive I remember this detail particularly and they passed in front of us went to the right and then faded away this was followed a short time later by a little boy now much older by about I suppose 11, 10 or 11 coming along wearing a rather large peaked cap long socks rather long short trousers of that period this was Edwardian I suppose or even earlier and he was kicking something as he went along and I picked up his feelings that he was happy to be coming out of school and going home just like all little boys and he moved along to the right and again faded out and then I began to understand what was happening the man who was sitting on my left was being manipulated in some way to call up the memories of his childhood and then later his adulthood as we'll see so what I was seeing was the, was the mental projection of these memories and remember this is an ideoplastic world I'm talking about and you can see how it's operating here the next figures that appeared was the man himself in his younger days as a young man walking along with the girl that he was ultimately going to marry and a very strange thing happened there because he walked by and then the two of them sat on the seat so I found myself sitting between him as a memory and him as a spirit now it was a most peculiar um, situation and the girl was over on his right that was projected from this man's memory took place in front of us straight away and here was the man himself dressed <coughs> in merchant navy uniform he had a soft peak cap he had um, a dark I would think almost indigo coloured jacket on and uh, the buttons were right up to the throat <coughs> and uh, this I'm quite sure if one researched it was the uniform of a merchant navy seaman of those days it was wartime first world war he had with him his wife and by this time two children and it was a very sad scene and a very highly emotional scene they were saying goodbye because he was going back to sea and she knew and he knew and even the children sensed that this was the last time they would meet and this rather sad scene persisted for a few minutes and then began to fade and coming through it towards us was a woman in white and she was wearing a dress that went down to her ankles and I remember she had long hair done up in a bun at the back and although I couldn't see the back of her head I knew perfectly well this was the case she was very radiant absolutely contrasting to the fairly gloomy background 
and she moved through to the now fading figures of the group in front, walked across to my friend on the left, leaned down and sort of completely stunned. This was his wife. He was, he, was, he was completely speechless, but she made no effort to talk to him. She just took his hands, helped him to stand up. They turned left and walked away in the direction where all these memories had been coming from. Only now, instead of being dark, it was bright. So they were walking along this path into the brightness. And it was very emotional for me and for everybody concerned. And... Um, it, of course, generated a, a feeling of great joy. So, these are some of the instances, and I could tell you many. I think I've had some 150 or so cases like this. And I've been through the death experience of, in so many ways. People that were hung, people that have been electrocuted, people that have had serious accidents and in various ages because these people some have been trapped for a very long time and you may ask what evidence is there to support all this is it a figment of my imagination well let me tell you um, of some cases where it was possible to verify did any of you see the 40-minute program on BBC Two called Ghost Train. Anybody see that? The haunting on the airfield. Well, I was taken by BBC to an airfield and not told where I was going. Arrived there at 9 o'clock in the morning with them. It turned out to be Linton on Ooze. I was told beforehand that there was a haunting on this airfield that had been very troublesome. The RAF <coughs> wanted to do something about it and the BBC producer concerned um, asked if I would go along with him. Um, it turned out that this airfield was being used when we arrived. There were 40 Provost jets uh, being used to train young pilots and they, they were doing circuits and bumps. That is to say they were doing a dummy landing on the airfield, taking off again, going round and so on doing this all the time, very noisy some of the introductory shots we had to take three times because the noise was so high that they couldn't record it but anyway they led me then into the control tower where the haunting had taken place introduced me to a young lady who was in the RAF whom surprisingly the RAF had posted back to the station for the occasion turned out when I was introduced to her that she'd seen this ghost that was causing the bother and seen him on two occasions. She'd seen him once, been rather alarmed, plucked up courage, went back some days later and saw him again. And he appeared on the landing, two flights up inside the control tower, and he stood in a doorway. Others had seen him too. In fact, one of the RAF military police refused to go in that building at night and it was things like this that was causing the RAF to take the matter very seriously. So, 
all the offices around us were all being occupied because flying was going on and the only concession they made as far as I was concerned was to stop people going up, up and down past me on the but I sat on the stairs and I was wired up for sound and the cameras were there and I tuned in and I soon picked up a man and I said this wasn't wartime as they thought this happened in peacetime this man was knocked down by a vehicle not far from this building I think it was on the perimeter track his back was badly damaged <coughs> and I could feel the pain that he felt I was going through what happened to him so I was able to describe this fairly accurately and he was brought in on a stretcher and he died in this building and uh, when this was over I went through the release with him he was taken away and again with great joy but to um, cut this long story short at the end of it the, I said I wish it were possible to find out about this to verify it so they looked on the station records which only went back three years and couldn't find it so the assistant producer went up to London looked through the archives in London something you couldn't do unless you had special permission to do it she found that in 1951 a young man was knocked down on the perimeter track as I'd indicated his back and his pelvis were crushed and he was put on a stretcher and he died and uh, this was a pretty close fit to what I'd said in fact there was nothing that disagreed <coughs> but more than that nobody ever saw that man again haunting that here at that particular spot I was taken along a little while later on the same airfield by the producer of the program and he said I want you to come along to this corridor it was on the first floor of the officers mess a very long corridor and he said whenever the cleaner comes down here she wants to whistle and sing she feels very happy he said we know she's a bit psychic from what we've been told do you think just out of curiosity you could tell us why this happens so I went along walked into this corridor and the opening into the corridor was near one end and I turned my back to the window at that end and started to walk the length of the corridor and halfway along I called out and I said Martin I want to run I don't know why but I want to run and then a few moments later I said there's a woman just run past me she's gone to the end she's met a man and they were, in a, they were in a strong embrace and there was a great surge of emotion so I said I don't know what this is about but perhaps I'll find out so I turned around started to walk back and it was all then coming this was a wartime event late wartime the man <coughs> had been on a flying mission reported lost his wife who lived near the station just made up her mind that to accept the worst so in her mind she'd come to the conclusion he's dead he's gone I must face up to this three days later as sometimes happened then because of the, the, the difficulty with communications being jammed up with so much communication traffic they, nobody known where he'd gone but he finally turned up three or four days later was debriefed came out of the office where he was debriefed 
into this corridor. In the meantime, she was told by telephone, your husband's here. So, you can imagine what this was like. As I walked back, <coughs> I said all this. I said, you know, Martin, I don't think this is a haunting at all. One goes through a self-judgment process, as you probably know, and in this self-judgment process, we judge ourselves. We, first of all, go through life fairly quickly as it took place. Then we go down, we go to another more serious level and we view the life again starting at its end and going back to its beginning. There's a very good reason for this. As we do it, we see the consequences of our actions and then we come to the point where we understand the motivations and since the higher self or the inner self is doing the judging, the God within, it follows that there's no concealment. The inner self knows absolutely what one's motivation was and it's no good trying to hide it or twist it or turn it. And this process can be, of course, very painful. But it, one doesn't do it on one's own, one is always accompanied by a guiding spirit who brings out points as necessary, tells you to, that is enough for now, leave it for the time being, brings you back to it when the time is right. You may spend some months doing this. When my own wife died, she, this was many years ago, my first wife died, uh, well, three months after she died, I was driving back from the place where we'd had our last holiday together. It was a sort of sentimental journey. I hadn't been aware of her there at all, but as soon as I got in the car to come back, I was aware of her, and she was sitting in the passenger seat, and we held a mental conversation for about an hour and a half as we were driving back. She suddenly said, I have to leave you now, and you will not be aware of me for some time and she I know knew later had started the process of self-judgment and in that process we discard you know the dark side of ourselves we hold on to the better bits we become a more refined person and when I contacted her afterwards that was very clear I could feel the sort of increase considerably so and then, eventually, one goes through various planes of existence, becoming more and more esoteric, more rarefied, and one joins up with other members of one's group. We are all in a group. The groups vary in size, but we are all members of a group, and that group will have an overall purpose, an overall interest. It may be planetary, it may be spiritual, it may be one of a thousand things. And each member of the group brings to bear and pours into that group the experience that it's gained. And then at some point one realises that in the interest of the furtherance of the group one needs to do more work on oneself. And at that point one is helped, guided to come back to this earth again in the next life.
that life being designed to do what is necessary this time round there is a life plan the parents are chosen selected to give the right genetic background and the right social background and one enters into this life and more or less follows the plan meets the people one needs to meet to sometimes round off earlier unsatisfactory relationships to get the right balance and at the end of the life you eventually come to the point where you review that one and you can see where you've gone wrong and where you haven't none of this is accidental those children that die will have come into this life with that plan that this is really what is going to happen to them this in no sense means that we don't have to try and help them it doesn't, it doesn't absolve us from doing all we can to help our fellow men but what it does mean is that that child may be having a short life may be coming back quite quickly after that short life may be gaining many rounds of experience we don't know, each one will have a different story each one will have a different purpose those children may have had lives in very very different circumstances previously everything you do like this where you require to cleanse is much better done if you appeal to the highest belief system that applies in that case do you follow? all I can say is that <clears throat> I seem to be able to very quickly change um, into another level of consciousness while still retaining my earth consciousness part of me tuned it. you know if you're driving a car and you've got certain things on your mind you can be thinking about lots of things and driving the car and you can do a whole journey you can't remember a thing about the journey you've done it absolutely safely your mind is operating in two levels isn't it it's a bit like that it's a bit like being able to shift from the worry level into some other level and uh, somehow I don't you know I don't know exactly how it works it's like hearing it's a, yeah yeah, it's certainly a right brain thing, that's for sure. I mean, I'm, whenever I pick things up, I almost invariably am aware of a contact as though it were coming from back here. And um, I don't think I have any faculty that you haven't all got for a number of lifetimes. That it usually isn't a one-off into the first life. I think one is prepared for it I don't have much direct knowledge of or any direct knowledge of of how that came about although I've, I've, had, I've had a number of direct experiences of previous lives so I'm quite sure about that but you, you, you seem to me to be a person with a rare gift I think any gift that one has whether it's clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience if you don't use it for service you're wasting it you know I think it's absolutely essential to use it that way you get people who go the other way they have a gift, a psychic gift 
And instead of following the path of light, they follow the path of darkness. And uh, you can do that. This is free will operating. We can use our gifts in whatever way we like. And the gift won't go away. It won't go away because we use it badly. It'll still be there, but its nature will change. It, it will start responding to the bad side. And you get then people misusing the gift in order to get control over others. And I've come across this. I've had to help people who've been the victim of this sort of thing. And very difficult it is too. So, my point to the questioner is that if you don't use a gift for service, then it's really wasted. I am uh, I'm not Orthodox Christian I am Christian in upbringing um, I have no doubt whatever about the existence of God some of my experiences have been such that I, it would be a self-denial to say that God didn't exist for me I appeal to what we sometimes call the Christ spirit because I like a number of people in New Age thinking realized that Christ's spirit was something that preceded the life of Jesus and has continued after and that Jesus was imbued with this Christ spirit to an extent perhaps greater than anybody else this is a pervading spirit will more often than not appeal to that but one of the spiritual laws is that like attracts like this is a very powerful law it happens here we're attracted to people like ourselves aren't we I mean, we don't find ourselves comfortable with somebody whose standards and so on are vastly different from our own but it's much more so in the next life we tend to gravitate towards people who are approximately at the same stage of spiritual development and are wrong to others then spiritually we are likely to be rather poorly developed if only temporarily in this life and we gravitate to the level at which such people are to be found and that in itself is often a sufficient punishment to, be, to find oneself milling around with people as bad as one has been um, it soon points to the faults that are in oneself but you can stay there a long time if, if you are like that the interesting thing is these regions where such people go are relatively dark and miserable and the more you progress in, spiritual, in a spiritual direction upwards the greater the light becomes and the greater the love becomes the love and the light are very much synonymous light is goodness biblical accounts of angels for example always talk about a great light um, it gives you the impression of great brilliance uh, and that is certainly something I've been aware of that it, on the rare occasions when I've been approached by some more elevated spirit I am aware that the brightness of that spirit is dimmed so that I am not distressed by it and I know all the time that if I were exposed to, to that it would be it would burn it would, it would be a very difficult experience yeah. sorry 
had occasion to try to help people with this but it's a very difficult field and one needs a lot of time one needs to specialise in it and although I have tried to do my best with it and have sometimes had some limited success I've never been in a situation where I could devote the sort of time to it really deserves but it's a field that is crying for for people to help but to do it you've got to know a lot and you've got to be secure in your own protection because you come under attack yourself sometimes I mean I've been into situations where black magic has been practiced and um, have have done has done some good I mean I've been able to do something but it is difficult and I think we've got to spend more time looking at it sorry you were pointing to do you think people try to experience their own death in life would be very what beforehand I don't think that's necessary I don't think that's necessary I think we make too much I mean I've been through these experiences of many other people I can tell you what it's like to be to lose your life in a submarine I've had two experiences of that um, or to lose your life in an aeroplane that's coming out of the sky just falling uh, a light trapped in the aircraft I, but these things are very transient and the reality of the situation in general terms is that being that dying is far easier than being born and we've all been through the birth experience obviously and the death experience is by and large easier and there's no point in amplifying or anticipating something unpleasant sufficient unto the day I would say myself I've, I have contacted I mean this sounds uh, I don't want to exceed your boggle threshold <laughs> but uh, for those that can accept it and answering your question truthfully I have had touching acquaintance with angelic beings in the course of healing healing somebody else I have had several devic contacts and these are very impressive indeed because the thing that one is very much aware of especially when they are divas such as divas of, of the wind or the space or war, you know, the elemental divas. The power that one senses with them is absolutely awesome. And uh, you know that they have at their command powers that dwarf anything that we as humans could command. But they, of course, would never use it um, unwisely or wantonly. Little people, they exist. I've never seen them but I went to a lady's house and she was moving and uh, I'd been around the garden for the first time with her and I sat down with her and I could feel brushing my legs uh, little, little people, I can't tell you any more than that and they were so impressing on me tell her, 
not to sell the house to someone who won't care for the garden. For 30 years she'd cared for that garden and it was beautiful. It does it in several ways. You know, we all talk about, <clears throat> we're all seeking for the political system that's better than the one we've got. And we wonder about this system and the other system. Somebody said recently, and it's absolutely right, if we changed in our hearts, if we could do that, if we could bring love into our hearts, truly, it wouldn't matter what political system you had, it would work. Any political system will work if people really change to the better that, or the best that is within them. And this is the whole process. We've all got to do this. It, um, is it accompanied by a feeling of malevolence, fear? Yes, I think in, in the in-between states of waking and, you know, in that threshold state, going to sleep and waking up, the hypnagogic state as it's sometimes called, we are very sensitive to other levels of um, existence. And if you are suffering like this, your best bet is to increase your protection. And I don't know whether you whether you've, um, are if you are a man who can pray, but if you ask for protection prayerfully before you get to that stage and make a habit of doing this, you will help to protect yourself. Do you understand? And I mean... Hmm? You don't think you could do it? There are various ways of doing it doing it if you can't do that I mean one way of doing it would be to, to, to write out the Lord's Prayer and just read it over to yourself before you went to sleep another way would be to visualize yourself protected by light you know I said light was spirituality if you imagine yourself encased in light like a liquid light a white light and it's from head to toe um, encapsulated in light this will help you you can practice this it's a good visualization people use the sign of the cross that comes back to what I was saying earlier that you appeal to a stream of religiosity if you like a cultural background when you're in such a situation but if that doesn't work for you it's no good so you've got to find some other method. Don't do that. That's the worst thing you could do. I would, yeah, I'll take, yeah, well, I'll take an opportunity to say to all of you, don't go seeking um, psychism without protection. If your development, if your development of your sensitivities goes ahead of your protection you're in trouble you've got to make sure that you are well protected at every stage don't force the pace and for many people sitting in development circles is dangerous um, especially the sort of development circle that will let anybody sit in it uh, the, the general balance of, 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 of the psychic and spiritual 
level is changing all the time in a random way and it's not good there are more people damaged by seeking out curiosity than anything else perhaps other ways of getting damaged of course are by drug taking because drug taking breaks down the natural protection um, the, the protection that is around you that you are born with it helps to break that down and it's difficult to repair it so sometimes you find that that is another way in which possession gets a grip but for you I would say put out of your mind trying to follow it up don't do that wait until you are protected later in life and it comes to you naturally then you may be able to do it it is a very dangerous path we all have guys it could easily be that the house itself is um, has a bad psychic atmosphere I mean it sounds like it if that's the case in which case you're better off going somewhere else or else getting someone in to cleanse the house as we were talking about earlier it wouldn't matter whether you believed in um, scattering holy water around the house but if the person that did it believed it uh, um, then it would work but it may have to be done several times but for yourself protect yourself with light and love the dark forces that try to attack us um, they, the one thing they seek in us is fear fear is their ally if you surround yourself with love and light and do not become afraid then you will build up a degree of protection but it will take time and you must go about it in a very thorough way you've got a guide it's just it's a matter of whether you are in close enough contact this is a um, um, this is a complex subject but I'll just touch briefly on it <coughs> you're going through an experience which is trying to tell you something and you can take two paths you can follow the path of curiosity in which case it will lead you into more and more difficulty or you can go along the path of self-discipline and try diligently to protect yourself and come out of that and then be content for the time being and content to wait until any psychic capacities you have blossom of, their, of themselves but that may mean going through a lot of life experience I was 50 odd before it happened to me that's a long time to wait sometimes it happens early sometimes late but protect yourself don't go into these things out of idle curiosity dangerous well very very often it's a very blurred it's a very blurred um, differentiation I mean I think a lot of people in psychiatric hospitals are suffering from some degree of possession and some psychiatrists are beginning to come to the same conclusion and it has been suggested by one or two that they ought really when they're examining people and have some doubts on this matter get a good clairvoyant uh, with them have a good clairvoyant with them to to really sort of suss out what the situation is where some form of possession had a very dramatic effect I was at the College of Psychic Studies one 
afternoon and uh, the president said that a woman had called and was coming back and she was suffering from agonizing pain in the head and neck and had, had, had been in this state for some seven years and she'd been to many countries trying to find somewhere some relief for this she tried all sorts of medical approaches none of which had worked and um, she was very very desperate and uh, listening to this I thought well I don't suppose I'm going to have any luck with her either but when she turned up I sat with her and became aware of another man with her and to cut a long story short this man was closely attached to her she'd nursed him through terminal cancer he died of um, a tumour on the brain and in the terminal stages of his life he'd lost he'd had a great deal of pain and it reached the point where he lost consciousness he became separated from the body and found himself hovering above the body unable to leave it and unable to get back into it and he was very angry and she was nursing him and I think there was some degree of affection between them when, she, when he died he not unnaturally attached himself to her and he said every time I left her I went out into the darkness well I went through all this with him the, the old catharsis I had the pains that he had and the pains which she was getting what he was doing he was reliving the agony of his last period of life and he was transferring it to her so she was feeling these pains very real in a very real fashion and I went through with him got him to uh, to leave her released him to another level which he should have been at a long time ago and the pain went just like that and she rushed out saying he's done a miracle he's done a miracle well I hadn't done a miracle I'd just done something which was purely logical it was absolutely logical I could see the reason why it had happened and what to do to stop it that can happen that's an actual instance of and she's not had the pain by the way since and um, I've been in touch with her on and off for the last four to five years since it happened and I know that she's okay now uh, um, it's a I mean I'm willing to talk to people about this because I think it's a good thing to sow seeds uh, it might help people not to get stuck one of the worst cases of, of, of being stuck and it's one that has been met I think by others was a woman who um, died in 1880 named Maud again this was verified uh, she was taught the doctrine of the spirit going, going into sleep at death and not waking up until the last to the day of judgment the last trumpet shall sound you know and this was taught very widely in the last century and still is by some churchmen and I think it's I may be maligning them but I think it's taught by the, by the Plymouth Brethren do they it's a very dangerous doctrine and it's I went through this woman's experience uh, you know the catharsis again when she died she went down the tunnel you know you've heard of this haven't you the tunnel that you know they emerge in the light at the far end she emerged in pitch blackness she went down the tunnel into a black void 
this was her mind committing her to this the mind is so powerful and I was told at the end of this having released her instead I did this release on the train going from Newark to St. Pancras uh, to King's Cross so it can happen in some funny places um, but having released her I was told observe the power of the mind it can pin the soul down in place and time at one extreme and at the other it can encompass the universe and that's very true our minds I I mean one realises the more one goes into this the power of the mind is so immense but it's also necessary for us not to try to misuse it How long has she been staying in this country? 1880. Since 1880. Yeah, but there are some who have been in it a lot longer. I was going to ask you, have you been in touch with... Earliest ones, I don't tell this very readily, because as I say, I don't want to go too far across the boggle threshold with people, but one of the earliest cases, I was dressed, I suppose like I am now, I may not have had a jacket on, and I suddenly felt the presence of someone very, very disturbed. And I put my hands on my knees, something like this. And I said to my companions, what culture sits like this? And immediately I got the answer, Egyptian. They didn't get a chance to answer me. The man was with me. And the first thing he did, I tore my, my tie off. I just pulled it like that. As he said, only slaves and the condemned wear ropes around their neck. That was his introductory remark. (laughs) Where are my slaves? Where are my attendants? And he was so haughty. And my two companions said to him, they were trying to get him round to an understanding of a little humility, but he wasn't having any of that. And the most he would concede at the end of our preliminary talk was, I do feel different, I must confess. And the next time we came across him, he was climbing a rope ladder against, I could see this, there was a long, there was a high, dank, black cliff, like granite, and it it, it was shining with moisture, and hanging down, was a ladder, a rope ladder, and he was clinging to this rope ladder. And he said, I need your help. If I gaze down, I am afraid of falling into the abyss, and if I gaze upwards, the light blinds me. But I have to climb this ladder. This was his allegorical journey out of, his, out of the state that we'd found him in. We'd helped to release him, but he'd got to do this bit himself. And it was some weeks later that we found him, he climbed the ladder. And uh, he's been back a few times, very helpful. Explained the, very carefully to, to us once the difference between time here and time where he is. Um, but no. But that, he was about 3,000 years. Where were you at the time? Where was I? What? Where, where were you in this happening? Oh, in my home. Your home? Yeah. Why was he there? He was brought to me. Brought to you? Yeah. 
No, 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 no. I, I, sorry? Now this is interesting, this question often arises. See, at that level, something we haven't mentioned is that communication is telepathic. It very quickly becomes telepathic when one gets into the next life. And um, the, the, one of the great things about telepathic communication is it works independently of language because somewhere within the unconscious the, the translation is done. The thought comes in as a pure thought and is automatically revealed in our language. The trans- you, can't, you can't telepath in a language. You see, you, you don't do that. You telepath the pure thought, really, of what you're trying to convey. Um, you don't realize this is the case. You can try and telepath words. That's okay. But a, but a long communication has to be done by telepathing the thought. It's received by the receiver, who then takes the pure thought and closes it with the language that it belongs to him. They've told me I'm the anchor man. Anchorman, and the the reason why why it's necessary to have someone performing this function is that when going through the catharsis, a great deal of emotional energy is released. There's a great burst of emotional energy, and this would cause the entity concerned, the person concerned, to rebound, and might be quite difficult to find again, like the recoil from a gun, if you like, and the you know and that is one reason and uh, being in this dense earth in this material world one can hold on much more easily to someone and dampen down that impact do you follow? Um, the other reason is that the, the um, entities the, the team while they're able to guide the person into my field if you like they themselves um, can't easily go through this catharsis process because of these problems and they can't easily penetrate the darkness because as you come nearer to the earth if you're a spirit of any development as you come near to the earth you are entering into a dark region and um, to them, I mean putting it crudely they don't want to be fumbling around in the dark so they find it much easier to steer the person in some way into my orbit or somebody else's orbit and let the process carry on from there so when you pass the doing this work you can see some similarities I mean the Tibetan ritual for the dead is to make sure they don't get stuck <laughs> uh, but of course it's tailored to again to that culture I I released um a Japanese airman who died in the Second World War on one occasion, or at least I was in the process. And I won't tell you the full story, but <clears throat> when I got to the point of having gone through his death with him, and then wondering how on earth I was going to help to release him because I could feel the culture gap. I spent about nine months in Japan some years ago, and I think that was the link that brought him to me, but that was as much as could be done. I mean, I know very little else about the Japanese culture. Um, and I was wondering what would happen. And he was saying, I have dishonoured myself. I cannot, I'm not fit to meet my ancestors. I believe, and that's what trapped him. And I was 
while I'm wondering what's going to happen, I see a man appear. He was his commanding officer. And he was standing some distance away and he gave a very sharp order in Japanese. And the man immediately responded to this. And he called him over. And then he told him he'd got to accompany him. And the two of them walked away into the light. And I knew that the commanding officer was going to very gently or as however that man would respond he was going to explain to him that he need not be concerned that he had dishonoured himself now that was interesting that was, the, that was the right fit to solve this problem anyway I've digressed a bit What's, somebody was asking a question no I don't <clears throat> I don't go around fishing you know what I mean um, I have released drug addicts and uh, they have to go through a period of um, um, rehabilitation in a way in a spiritual sense because their minds are, have been damaged in a way they've used them wrongly and it's necessary to take them out of that there's no permanent damage done in that sense the soul itself is intact but the mind has been misused and that degree of misuse has got to be eliminated somehow and so they go through a period of, of uh, adjustment same I applies to someone suffering from alcohol they will need to be <coughs> they need to be taken out of the obsessive need for alcohol the free will to abuse ourselves or otherwise if we abuse ourselves one of the consequences is that any damage we do has eventually got to be put right it won't be physical damage you're concerned with because that's all left behind but damage to the mind suicides um, suicides the, there is a general but it is a very general rule that a suicide will not be released to the levels that we were talking about until the end of their natural life what would have been the end of their natural life this is what generally happens but having progress on a, on a path that they have to make their way along it is just like Pilgrim's progress there are obstacles they have to get round and, and so on but that's far better than being stuck there is a purpose in all evil and this is something you will if you haven't already you will arrive at an understanding of this I was once told from my own guidance that evil ser serves God's purpose it offers us an alternative way which is seemingly easier and gives us the opportunity to make this mistake but you'll find that all evil, no matter how bad, is eventually turned to the good. It's eventually turned to the good. Um, so it does serve a purpose. But there is a hierarchy of evil, as there is a hierarchy of angelic and spiritual beings, of human spiritual beings. And um, uh, that hierarchy is is if you like supported by the dark side of humanity I mean if we were all to dispense with that and that's impossible of course but if we were then there would be no supporting structure for it it wouldn't be able to function it can only 
work through our own darker selves it can find a response in us it will do what it wants to do but if we refuse to let it if we will not if we don't exhibit a dark side which in some regard matches their darkness then it has no power over us and extinguished at times and this is what I was saying that God gives us this alternative to allow us if you like to dim the light but, and then learn how to find our way out of it and I think almost all of us here in past lives will have gone into the darkness at some stage and we'll have that deep memory within us at the spirit level <laughs>